Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NosillaCast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, August 22nd, 2021, and this is show number 850. This week's Chit Chat Across the Pond is another installment of Programming by Stealth, where Bart Bouchatz continues his instruction on how to use the open source tool Shemoi to manage our dot files, those little hidden configuration files on our Macs. In this installment, Bart teaches us how nearly effortless it is to sync our Shemoi managed dot files up to a private repo on GitHub. Seriously, this is like two steps. It was super easy. Bart then teaches us how Chamois supports templating. When Bart started to describe templating in Chamois, I said, oh, it's just like mail merge in Microsoft Office. He laughed and said he was hoping I would say that, that I would recognize it as being exactly like that. With Chamois, let's say you have your email address in a bunch of your dot files, and you need to change it to a different address. If you use Shemois' templating feature, you can create one file with your email address, and in every dot file, you reference that address, and you only have to change it in that one place. Bart walks us through a couple of worked examples to help us see exactly how it works and get a little practice. Now, the next episode of Programming by Stealth will end this mini-series within a series on Shemois, and if Bart's work manages to finally slow down to where he can get some good thinking time, we should be starting up uh, PHP shortly after that. Now, of course, I've got a link in the show notes to Bart's spectacular tutorials over at pbs.bartofficer.net, and you can listen to this episode of Programming by Stealth in your podcatcher of choice. By the way, if you hear any construction sounds in the background, our new carpenter Kent is rebuilding a closet right next to my office as we're recording, but he's working on a Sunday, so I didn't want to tell him to stop. I don't think it's too loud, but if you hear it, you can figure out that you've got great hearing. This week, I was asked to present at the Silicon Valley Mac Users Group about Bart's awesome tool for creating long, strong, memorable passwords, xkpasswd.net. These people invite anyone to come who wants to, and they record these remote presentations to YouTube. That means you, too, can watch my presentation. After I posted the video to our Slack, at podfeet.com Slack, Ian Lessing wrote, This is like a free screencast online. I took a look at Bart's password generator before, and the UI was too complex, so I gave up. But this video will really help demystify it. I do want to say that the quality and crispness of my explanations is definitely not up to my Screencast Online standards, which take about a week to record, but I think you'll be able to follow along and hopefully understand why you might want to use xkpasswd.net to create at least some of your passwords and how to use Bart's tool. There's a link in the show notes to the YouTube video, so you can go watch it too. Last week, every single Apple-centric podcast was busy with hand-wringing about Apple's new child protection efforts. This week, they have a new target for their hand-wringing, and it's the changes that the folks at Agile Bits announced about 1Password. What happened was, Michael Fay wrote a blog post at OnePassword.com explaining how 1Password has evolved over time as it went from a Mac app alone to adding iOS, Android, Windows, and Linux applications. He describes the challenges of keeping multiple teams developing independently and yet in parallel, along with a server-side team, and how this approach slowed them down from doing the enhancements they wanted to do. Now, I'm not going to try to replicate what he explains because there's a link in the show notes, but the bottom line is that their new approach has gotten the internet's collective panties in a bunch. The panties in a bunch part is that starting with 1Password 8, which is now out in public beta, 1Password is no longer a native Mac app. It's an Electron app. 
Now, Electron apps are kind of like web apps in that they're written in JavaScript, HTML, and CSS. The advantage from a developer's point of view is that they can write one set of code for macOS, Windows, and Linux to perform the necessary functions of an app. Then the developer can use HTML and CSS to make it look appropriate for the operating system that you're using. For example, on macOS, you would expect that the stoplight red, yellow, green buttons would appear in the upper left. But if you're on Windows, that would be weird. You'd expect the red box with a white X in the upper right. And Electron allows you to do that. Now, Electrons have a bad reputation, and I've been kind of trying to figure out why. The two biggest reasons I've heard are that Electron apps can be bloated using tons of RAM, and that they don't look or act like native apps. But the loud Mac people on the internet seem to have come up with a third reason. They feel betrayed and abandoned. I find this reaction fascinating. They're assuming that the new app will be terrible, and it won't feel like a Mac app at all, and this is just the beginning of the end of 1Password, and it will no longer be the darling of our community. Now, I'm going to try to draw an analogy, and I'm not sure it works exactly, but here goes. It's like if your parents sold the home you grew up in and bought a condo in a nicer climate to live in. You feel betrayed because it was your home. You're not even going to look at the new condo to find out that it's got an awesome pool, and they made sure there was a guest room so you can stay over anytime you like. Because you feel betrayed and abandoned, you won't even give it a chance. Now, the funny thing is that many of these loud people on the internet haven't even tried the beta for 1Password 8. Some are hollering on Twitter and in their podcasts after having tested the very first beta out of the gate for maybe an hour. They haven't even mentioned filing bug or feature requests to the 1Password team. They're just sad and angry, and they're very loud about it. I heard one very loud podcaster complaining that when he mistyped his password, the field didn't even jiggle. Seriously, this was the first complaint he made about the new beta that he'd been using for one hour. Now, I'd heard about Electron apps starting, I don't know, maybe a year ago, and I was pretty sure a few of my apps were already Electron. I'd been told that by some people. But I was curious whether some of the apps I enjoy were Electron, and I didn't even realize it. I went hunting on the internet for a way to find out which of my apps were Electron. Cameron Noakes wrote a blog post on how to know if a desktop app uses Electron. And in the post, he gives us a nifty little bash script to run in the terminal to find out how many we have and which ones they are. I took a look at the script, and with my you know, limited knowledge of Bash scripting, I was able to determine that it appeared to do what Cameron said it did, so I copied it into a text file, I made it executable, and I ran it from the command line in the terminal. Now, while I thought I had maybe four or five Electron apps, Cameron's script revealed that I have 15 apps that are Electron-based, and I use at least 10 of them regularly. They, they kind of dropped into a couple of categories. Coding software tends to be Electron-based. I use Visual Studio Code as my development environment. I use a tool called Sizzy to view apps I'm developing on all different platforms at once, and I got that one from Helma. GitHub has a desktop app for its version control system that I've used a few times. I use regularly Git Kraken, which is a third-party version control application for GitHub. There's also a set of messaging apps that are all Electron. Signal, Skype, Facebook Messenger, Microsoft Teams, Slack, and Discord. Now, I knew about Discord, but I didn't know... Oh, and I knew Slack was Electron, but I didn't know the other four were Electron apps. Now, in kind of random categories, I use a database application called Airtable. That's how Steve and I track what we're watching on TV. I've told you about a video screen recording app called Loom. 
And I've also talked extensively about Folge, the documentation software. Just last week, I talked to you about Joplin for taking notes and making little notebooks. And Draw.io is my favorite diagramming tool. So that's 15 apps that are electron-based, and I thought maybe four or five. Now, I have to be honest here. I, as I said, I simply didn't realize that many of these apps were electron-based. Now, you could suggest that I'm unobservant, and you know that might be a valid perspective. When I thought back on each of these together, I realized they all do feel different in some way. One of the complaints about Electron apps is they don't look like native apps, and that's a big concern for 1Password users. Folge is the best app out there on the Mac to replace my beloved Clarify for creating rich documentation with screenshots and annotations. I like the app and I love the developer. But I gotta say, Folge doesn't feel one bit like a native app. It's not a bad interface, it just doesn't look like a Mac app. It's got the stoplight buttons in the upper left, but that's kind of the end of the similarity. I think I realized it wasn't normal when I first went looking for preferences because they weren't in the same place. Now, Loom, the tool I talked about for doing video recording, certainly doesn't look like a native app either, but it's such an interesting app for making videos of your desktop and posting them online real time that I never thought about why it was so different. And remember, last, just last week, Nightwise told you about the open-source notebooking, note-taking app Joplin, and I positively raved about how gorgeous it was? Well, that's an, an Electron app, and it's gorgeous. You know what, though? The Ulysses interface is pretty non-standard, and I would not have been surprised if it was an Electron app, but it appears to be native to the Mac OS. Non-standard interfaces are not the domain of Electron apps. I put screenshots of Joplin and Ulysses both into the show notes, and their layout is pretty darn similar. One's Electron and one isn't. I mentioned Sizzy, the app that Helma suggested to me that's available through Setapp or $51 a year from the developer. I didn't realize it was that expensive. I got to tell you, I'm glad Cameron's script revealed it as an Electron app because I'd actually forgotten all about it. This app lets you view your web apps on all different devices on a single screen. You can view on an iPhone 11 Pro, a Pixel 4 XL, a Galaxy Note 10, an iPad Pro 11, a desktop, and an iPhone 12 all in one window. Now, there isn't a single thing about this interface that looks like a native Mac app. It's got scores of button on, buttons on the interface that I've honestly never explored, and they don't look at all like Mac OS buttons. And yet... It performs a fabulous function for developers, and it's cross-platform to Mac, Windows, and Linux as a result. So Electron apps can be weird if the developer wants them to look weird, or they can look gorgeous, or they can look native, or maybe they can look even better than native. Now let's talk about speed with Electron apps, because people are real worried about that. The one thing I do notice with Electron apps is the initial window of all of them seems to build a bit slowly. Take Skype, for example, you just see a white window for a second or so, like a slowly loading web page, maybe with a little progress thing. But as soon as it's up, it's very snappy. Git Kraken, the version control app that Bart and I like, is very slow to open each project, but once it's open, it's snappy as well. They do recognize that something got changed in Big Sur that's made it even slower, so it's not that big of a deal. Now, Electron apps all take that second or two to build but I've got some mainstream native apps that open way more slowly than my Electron apps. Excel takes a full 17 seconds to launch. On my 16-inch MacBook Pro, it's an 8-core Intel i9 with 64 gigabytes of RAM. I'm serious, 17 seconds. I've timed it. 
I haven't counted how long Affinity Photo takes to launch, but it's at least that long. Native apps don't necessarily load faster, that's for sure. All right, enough discussion of other Electron apps. What about our precious 1Password? Should we be freaked out? Is the world really coming to an end? I decided I had to see what all the kerfuffle was about, so I signed up for the early access program for macOS for 1Password 8. Unlike every single loud person on the internet, I'm not going to poke holes at 1Password and tell you the nitpicky details that don't seem to work quite right. I'm not going to do that because that's not being a good netizen. When you sign up for an early access beta program, you're supposed to test features and then file bug reports and enhancement requests. That's the deal you make when you do that. But I will give you some perspective on those very things that are supposed to be so awful about Electron apps. First of all, I think the visual design of 1Password 8 beta is gorgeous. I'm running it on my 2016 MacBook Pro that's running the macOS Monterey Beta, and 1Password has that clean white space design that is reflected in that new operating system. And guess what else? After I use Touch ID to unlock 1Password, it doesn't waste time doing a cute animation of the lock unlocking, so it actually opens my passwords significantly faster than 1Password 7 on my production machine. Seriously, it opens your vaults blindingly fast. Another thing I noticed was the new search is significantly better. In 1Password 8 beta, you get a dropdown of matches as you're typing, and, and the graphics are minimalistic, so it's very fast as it's finding them. In contrast, uh, the production 1Password 7 draws all of the graphics and information about the matches in the main window, and as a result, it's much slower in the old version. Now, the old version also only matches major fields by default, and you have to change it with a dropdown if you want to search all fields. Beta version 8 searches all fields by default. I've always wanted that. Why do I want to search anything but everywhere to find what I'm looking for? Now, I know a lot of features aren't finished yet, and that's what betas are all about. A friend of mine was distraught because the keystroke command backslash to invoke 1Password in the browser wasn't working. I did a quick search of the beta forums where the 1Password team is taking in feedback, and I found that in the latest beta release, our beloved keystroke is back. I knew it couldn't be gone forever. They even have t-shirts made that say, command backslash is my password. They've branded on that, so it had to come back. Well, in all passwords, of, I'm sorry, in all versions of 1Password that I've used over the years, I've always been slightly confused when I add a new login because there are all these other fields available, most of which I don't need. I'm never clear on whether I'm supposed to be changing the names of the labels or just what I should put in them. In 1Password 8, in contrast, the default entry is pretty minimalistic, and then there's an Add More button that allows you to add more fields that you, you can choose from, and it's, it, that's much more intuitive. You get just the minimalistic stuff, and then you can add these other fields if you need them. I created a new login using Beta 8, and when I clicked in the Username field, I was shocked when it offered me a list of the usernames and emails I commonly use. That was such a time saver. A few things stand out graphically to make 1Password more intuitive to me also. Many times I edit an entry or I'm creating a new one and I forget to hit save and I get surprised when I try to select something else and it yells at me that I haven't saved. In 1Password 8 beta, when you're editing an entry, a purple striped banner with the word editing across it shows up along with a very obvious big blue save button. I mean, you really can't miss it. You aren't going to forget that you're in the middle of editing. 
Another confusion for me is where to go to create a new entry in 1Password 7 and earlier. I eventually find it, but it's not very obvious. To the right of the search field is a very small, very thin, medium gray plus sign. In 1Password 8 beta, there's no mystery involved. There's a giant blue button with a plus button and the words new item inside it in the upper right. Again, you can't miss it. In the handy feature category, in the upper right of an entry where it says edit with a pencil, is a vertical three-dot menu. In there, you can quickly open the item in a new window, add it to favorites, move it to a different vault, duplicate it, archive it, or delete it and even copy a link to the item. Now let's talk about whether 1Password8 feels native. As far as that goes, I think it really does hit the mark. Command comma launches preferences just like it should. Command W closes the preference window. Command S saves your entries when you're done. And of course, command backslash does open the browser extension for you. Tabbing between fields worked as expected and dropdowns and checkboxes are perfectly normal. Basically, everything I tried looked and exactly it looked and acted exactly as I would expect from a native app. Now, remember I said one of the problems people complain about with Electron apps is that they're bloated in memory usage? I opened 1Password 7 on my macOS Big Sur Mac and 1Password 8 Beta on my macOS Monterey Mac, and I compared the usage. The Electron Beta 8 version was using 10 times the memory of the native app. But the native app was only taking up 8 megabytes at the time, and the Electron app was only taking up 85. So to put that in perspective, Dropbox at the time was taking nearly 400 megabytes and Apple Mail was over 250 megabytes. In fact, 1Password 8 Beta was number 11 of my running apps in memory usage when I first checked. Now, I left the two versions of 1Password running on both machines for a while and when I checked the next day, the Beta Electron version had ballooned up to 102 megabytes. But in that same time, the native app had increased to using 204 megabytes, or exactly twice what the Electron app was using. Now I think my super scientific measurements prove it is possible to write bloated memory apps when writing native code or with Electron, and it's also possible to write efficient code in either one. Now one of the big advantages of de developing native macOS and iPadOS apps is that if you use the tools Apple gives you, you practically get accessibility for free. I've spoken to several developers when I discover a button that's not accessible and the reaction has been, wait a minute, you mean the rest of it, it is accessible? How did that happen? Well, a fear when developers create Electron apps is that they won't have those automatic elements available to them and they may not make the extra effort to make their apps accessible. I think this is a valid concern. I ran the 1Password uh, early beta through its paces and I found a lot of things that were problematic with it. But I'm a responsible beta tester, so I took notes in preparation to report these findings to the develop development team rather than ranting and making declarations on Twitter about how it's hot garbage. While I was testing the beta, I got a notice of a new version available. I'd signed up for the nightly builds, so I'd be sure to test only the very, very latest version. After finishing my testing, I installed the update. Guess what? Much of what I had recorded as problem areas had already been corrected in the, in the accessibility category. For example, in my first test, the toolbar where search and new item uh, live was empty as far as voiceover was concerned. But after the nightly build update, it was completely accessible to me. They've still got work to do, but they're making great progress while I'm actually, wa I'm actually watching this. 
I've been talking to um, Scott Howell, who is uh, blind, and he's been doing a lot of testing, and he's finding more problems than I am, but he's doing the same thing I'm doing. He's reporting them, and he's watching them get fixed. They're not all there yet, and he's got a lot more issues, but they're doing the work. I do think it's a valid concern that Electron doesn't get you accessibility for free, but it sure feels like the 1Password team is on top of this and working their typing fingers to the bone on it. The bottom line is, I'm already finding a lot of new features and UI enhancements in the beta for 1Password 8, and it was only launched into beta a few days ago. I don't feel abandoned, and I don't think this is a disaster for the Mac faithful. If this helps the 1Password team to thrive and the software to be enhanced faster than it was with all of their disparate, disparate development teams, then I'm all for it. Now, after I posted my perspective online, I expected to get a lot of blowback but I was actually surprised at how many people they said that said they felt the same way I did. I'm not saying whether I'm right or wrong, but the lesson learned is that the loud people are not necessarily the majority opinion. Remember I mentioned Folge is one of the Electron apps I use? That's one for documentation with screenshotting annotations and instructional steps. I said that I really love the developer. Here's another reason I like him so much. After I posted my article, Alexei Srebinyi from Folge wrote me a note that included some new information I found helpful in thinking about the future of Electron. Here's what he wrote. The main takeaway for me personally is that with 1Password stepping into Electron world, this would boost Electron development and bring even more improvements and features. From my perspective, Electron got a second life after Slack became popular, and its developers had to contribute a lot into Electron development to keep the Slack app running smoothly. They have dedicated half-people, half-programming gods, like Samuel, who goes by Marshall of Sound on GitHub, who are working on Electron literally day and night. The second factor is that as more popular Electron apps are there, Apple and Microsoft have to accept the fact that Electron exists and has rights to be distributed. At some point, Apple was very much against Electron and even marked Electron apps as untrusted. But they had to cope with this and allow Electron apps to be notarized and distributed through the App Store. I thought that Alexi's point of view was a really interesting perspective. It's entirely possible that we're watching the evolution of computing unfolding before our very eyes, and maybe it will be even better than what we have now. I want to mention one more thing before I close out this topic. As I said, I got a lot of positive feedback on the blog post, but the comments took a surprisingly ugly turn, and it was interesting because it was off-topic. Way back with 1Password 6 and older, you created local vaults with a standalone app. And then, if you chose, you could sync those vaults through Dropbox to your other devices. In 2015, the 1Password developers created the 1Password.com service that allowed for two-factor authentication, teams and families, a way to securely share items, and a more secure encryption format. On top of all that, it was way more stable than syncing through Dropbox, in my personal opinion. Three years ago, when they released 1Password 7 as a subscription version, they eliminated local vaults. But they also allowed you to buy a standalone version at the time that continued to support local vaults. 97% of their users chose the subscription service. With 1Password 8, there will no longer be an option for local vaults, but 1Password 7 standalone will continue to work. I put a link to Dave Tier's description of the entire history of this and the future of local vaults in the 1Password community forums. Now, standalone local vaults was not the subject of my article. It was entirely on the subject of 1Password becoming an Electron app. 
In spite of this, a few people became rabid that I didn't talk about the move away from local vaults. One of them actually accused me of being, and I'm quoting them here, an outsider rather than someone within the community of 1Password users. People are funny, aren't they? I want to shift gears and I want to talk about TikTok, because TikTok is my happy place. I want to explain why and how it's different than any other social media and why I love it so much. Before I get into why TikTok makes me so happy, I'll run through the other social media platforms and how I feel about them. I'm on Facebook, and it's okay for keeping up with my friends and family, but I started pulling away from contributing when I noticed that my real-life experiences were getting diminished by, by my desire to capture them in photos and post them. I would also spend time checking to see how many likes I got. How is that healthy? I still go there and I post from time to time, but I'm not obsessed like I used to be and I'm a little bit happier that way. Now, Instagram is another story. I absolutely don't understand why people like it so much. I find the interface for photos irritating. I mean, if it's all about photos, why can't I zoom in? Why can't I see it bigger? And the fact that there's no iPad or desktop app drives me nuts. If you go to Instagram via the web, you don't get a plus button, so you can't even contribute. And I like to contribute. On the Mac, I use a workaround. If you turn on the developer tools in your browser, you'll find something called User Agent Switcher. That allows you to trick the website into thinking you're coming from a phone, and then you do get the plus button. How dumb is it that they actively make it so you can't contribute from the desktop or an iPad? I post occasionally in spite of that, and I go on into it daily to see photos and videos of my grandchildren, and then I get off. I read a lot of Twitter, and I contribute a fair amount there, but I'm not actually happy there. I built my feed during the political outrage of the previous four years, and as a result, it's not at all a happy place. I've tried culling my feed, but I've got so many people in my feed now that I can't seem to dig out of it. There's a reason people refer to reading Twitter as doom-scrolling. The only progress I made towards improving my enjoyment of Twitter was when I discovered the Black and Chem hashtag. During Black and Chemistry Week, this is on fire with brilliant black scientists talking about what they do. Oddly, most of them seem to be women, and that's pretty fun too, so I just started following lots of them. Then that led to Black and Bio and Black and Physics, and now at least some of my feed is filled with sciencey goodness. Even with all the doom in my feed, my favorite social media platform was Twitter until TikTok came along. Now let's talk about TikTok, and I'm going to assume you've never used TikTok so I can bring everyone along with me. And even if you already use TikTok, I'm going to describe how I accidentally ended up on the happy path instead of the doom path I took with Twitter. First of all, TikTok is on every platform because you can use an app or you can use the web, and you get a great experience either way. No desktops being purposely banned nonsense. TikTok has basically two ways you can scroll through it, for you and following. For you is things the algorithm thinks you like. It starts by offering you just popular stuff, but as you hit the little heart button, or you watch a video all the way through, or you follow people, or rewatch videos, or even copy a link to forward, it starts to learn what you like. I think it's critical that you're mindful of what you want TikTok to be for you before you start using it. If you want it to be political, go for it and heart away on the videos that you enjoy. But if you want it to be pure happiness, heart up those puppies and kittens. If you want to laugh, rewatch and forward things that make you laugh. If you want to learn, follow scientists or linguists or doctors or marginalized people who are teaching on TikTok. 
I hearted and followed and forwarded an eclectic set of things with a strong bias towards things that make me laugh. There is some of the most hilarious stuff on TikTok that I'm compelled to share with my friends and family. So far, they seem to like what I send, but they could just be being polite. Now, my favorite people on TikTok are people who lip-sync comedians. For some reason, women lip-syncing male comedians just crack me up. Their facial expressions just really do it for me. And they don't even have to be perfect lip-syncers for it to really work well. I'm not sure how TikTok gets away with the licensing of this content, but they somehow have the rights to it because it doesn't get taken down. There's a pregnant woman named Diana Rantamaki who uses this filter that makes her head way too big for her body, and she pretends to be an 11-year-old, foul-mouthed, deranged boy named Derek. I don't know what it is about, about her, but she leaves me in stitches every single video. Now remember, I warned you, there's a link to her in the show notes, but she's very foul-mouthed, so it's not safe for work at all. But it's absolutely hilarious. If you want an idea of how twisted my, my sense of humor is, you should check out her videos. Now, for some reason, a few songs have become kind of like their own themes on TikTok. It's sort of like a meme where lots of people use the same photo with dif different joke lines attached. In the TikTok case, tons of people sing the exact same song. I'm not sure why this is so compelling, but it's fascinating to watch and listen to these, and they're mostly a cappella singers. One of the meme songs is called The Wellerman, and it's really fun to hear it sung by so many different people. From listening to a few of these meme songs, I came across a guy named Bobby Waters, who has the lowest voice I've ever heard in my life. His handle is The Bobby Bass. I went through about 20 of his TikToks watching and listening to this amazing voice. There's also a concept called a duet, and that's where someone sings or talks or jokes around side by side with an existing TikTok video. If you take all of these tools and ideas together, then Bobby Bass did a duet adding his double bass voice with subharmonics to the Wellerman sung by five other gentlemen from Ear Candy Official. It's absolutely amazing. I should mention in the middle here that um, TikTok videos are really short. They're like 30 to 60 seconds long. So if somebody sends you one, it's okay to click it because you're not making a big time investment. It's not like somebody sends you an hour-long video on YouTube. They're really, really short. Now, the problem is TikTok's addictive. So you're not just going to be gone for 30 to 60 seconds. But uh, you know what? You're going to be happy when you're there. Another one I follow is a woman named Emily Hess. She has these itty-bitty jumping spiders, and she records video of, of them with super, a super macro lens. So they're jumping around or sitting on her finger and waving their little arms, but it's this crazy macro lens, so they look huge. And then she does voiceovers and a high-pitched voice as though it's them talking. I know that sounds weird and maybe even creepy if you don't like spiders, but with her voice, they're absolutely adorable and often really, really funny. I follow a lot of school teachers and their stories of things the kids say are hysterical. I really like Mr. William, Mr. Williams, who teaches pre-K. He's gay and he wears wonderful, colorful nail polish, and he talks a lot about inclusion and how he makes the kids feel good. He also reenacts the many times he's out drinking in a bar on a weekend, and a parent tells him they're going to tell on him to the principal. Those are hilarious. I follow a trans non-binary person who goes by the Jeffrey Marsh, whose entire message is to spread kindness. They explain what it means to be trans and what it means to be non-binary, and they're compassionate and confident, and they make me feel like everything's going to be okay. There's another category of TikTok that I find really fascinating, and that's people with disabilities 
just talking about what it's like to be them. There's a couple of women I've watched who have Tourette's. One posted a video of herself trying to bake a cake, but her tics are so bad she keeps throwing eggs across the room and dumping batter on the floor. She's not being funny, and she's not trying to make people feel sorry for her. She's just showing you her life. The other one tells funny stories about the crazy things her mouth just yells at the most incredibly inappropriate times, and she laughs at herself because what else are you going to do? I started uh, watching another woman. Um, I didn't catch her name. She has autism, and she goes by at the sound... Wait, I'll get it yet. Sound of the Forest. One delightful video of hers was when she recorded herself inside a car going through a car wash, just because she really loves car washes. She's so happy and joyful in this video while giving us a peek into her life. She also loves bugs, so people send her bug-related things, and she does unboxing videos of these presents. My favorite one she did was all about dung beetles, where she squealed with delight as she explained what's cool about dung beetles. There's a young girl named Jordan who has autism whose mom helps her do her videos. Her mom explains Jordan's limitations and her strengths, and they've created a company called Be Kind to Everyone. They sell shirts, and Jordan works packing the shirts, and it's been a great thing for her life enjoyment to have this job. You know what? She has 844,000 followers. Why? Because she and her mom are kind to everyone. I bought one of her shirts, because why not wear a shirt that says, be kind to everyone? The bottom line is I've discovered so many funny, amazing, compassionate, and delightful people on TikTok, and that's why it makes me so happy. I could go on and on about the funny grammar people, the doctors who explain crazy diagnoses, the physicists that do experiments, the tall young man whose entire family is little people, and how he punks his mom all the time. But you know what? I got to stop working on this article so I can go watch TikTok. Do you wish I interrupted the show by telling you about a new mattress or an app to help you meditate or men's underwear you should buy? (laughs) No. It takes a fair bit of money to produce the content at the Podfeet Podcast, and it takes even more effort. But I don't want to do advertising. Instead, I rely on people like you who find value in the show making financial donations either through a pledge at podfeet.com slash Patreon or by one-time donations through podfeet.com slash PayPal. It sure would be swell if you could stop by one of those two links and show the value you get out of the the content we create at the Podfeet Podcast. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Bouchot. Well, is it all doom and gloom this week, Bart? Do you know, it strangely isn't. Ooh, yay! I was halfway through the show notes and I realized that we have a giant section on social media and it is 100% good news. <laughs> Hot dogs. I yeah, love it. I don't know if that's ever happened before. Lots of nice things to say. So <laughs> Let's take it, good. right? Yeah, we've no, we've no deep dives, but we have a lot of feedback and follow-up, which is all follow-up, actually. Um, so let's start with the biggest of it all. Of course, in the last two weeks, there has been more developments in the Apple child protection thing. I'm, okay. I, it's not a scandal because there's nothing scandalous here, but it's it's a thing. I don't know what we want to call it. Uh, a gate feature. Yeah. So we have some actual new information. So that, that that we should definitely call out first. So since we last spoke, Apple have released a new FAQ, which I don't know why this wasn't their first FAQ. Because <laughs> it probably would have helped. I'm not sure it would have solved the problem, but it couldn't do any harm. Uh 
more recently then, they've also released a more detailed paper, which they're calling the Security Threat Review, which they carried out on their own CSAM detection feature. Hmm. It's good they carried out the review. Again, they probably should have shared that along with those other white papers on day one. But anyway, it's here, so we can see it. I've heard it said that there's only one thing we all agree on. It's Apple botched the rollout explanation. Yeah, and Craig Federici literally said that when he oh, did. He had, he? Yeah, there was an excellent interview with Joanna Stern that is linked in one of the stories. Um, because she's now at the Wall Street Journal, she gets big interviews. Um, right. So she got Craig Federici as an interview, and he basically straight up started the interview. Yeah, we did a terrible job announcing this, and they had a very good conversation actually. And it was after that conversation that they released the security threat review. Uh, okay. He, he actually made quite a bit of news in that conversation. Uh, there's an extremely good summary, actually, of what we got from both the security threat review and the Craig Federico interview from Tidbits. So that's linked in the show notes there because the, the Tidbit summary is very good. So okay. in terms of new stuff, you know, um, I'm reminded of Ken Ray's segment, what's news to Bart? Well, the, the, the new things I have learned since last we spoke that I think are important are firstly that Apple is not only relying on the NCMEC database. They're cross-referencing it with another database, and they haven't said who the other database is, but what they have said is, unless an image is in both databases, it is not in theirs. Now, that's very interesting. I heard on um, ATP, and they sounded like they knew what they were talking about on this, that that it is illegal for anyone to have the photos that are in the NECMEC database other than NECMEC. Correct. Right. Yeah. Yes, but not not right. That's a side effect of the law, which is that possession of CSAM is illegal. Right. So there is right. So any so no someone one else is, has a copy of the has a different database, so they have access to the those photos. They may not be in the United States of America. Ah, point taken. So okay. Um, yeah, it's illegal to possess CSAM unless you are one of the exceptions and every country would have a different exception and in the united states yeah. that is okay. nick that is um nickmec who have that exception okay. but yeah i mean this is an international problem these are international like if you hear on the news that there has been a major sting operation against csam it's never in one country right it's interpol getting together with the with fbi getting together with um Europol or whatever. I mean, th- these are always massive, simultaneous things across many jurisdictions. Th- th- this is an international issue. So it seems very likely to me that the, the the second database would be an international one of some sort. Perhaps a UK database maybe would seem like a likely candidate, but I'm just guessing, right? They haven't told us. But it's interesting okay. that it has to be on at least two databases to be an Apple's database. That, that was very interesting. The bit of news Craig made um, was that he actually put a number on the threshold. About 30 was what he said. Which to me hmm. as a computer programmer means it's probably 32. <laughs> it's going it's to be a power of two, right? But anyway, about 30 is, is the actual words that came out of his mouth. Um, the other thing Apple have said after his interview, it became, it became announced policy. So he mentioned that there was going to be auditing. And they hadn't given us details on how that auditing would happen. But since the interview, we've learned a bit more about how the auditing will work. And Apple are going to have a knowledge base article they're going to keep maintained with a hash of the current official database. So that if your phone's database is interfered with, if someone injects extra signatures, the hash won't match. And so people can check Apple's homework. 
Wait, say, sorry, say that again? Apple are going to publish the hash of the official database. So it is not going to be possible to inject extra images into oh. the database. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay, okay, so, right. So the hashes that exist that have to be matched for there to be a, a uh, finding will be known. So okay. the total database of all the hashes loaded into your iPhone will be hashed. So a hash of hashes. So if someone's phone picks up some malware or if Apple sneakily try to sneak in some extra hashes into the database, then the total hash of the database will change because the database will have a new entry in it. So it will not be possible for Apple to sneak in extra entries. Okay, so they can't suddenly put in Chinese dissident photos or something, whatever. Right, or a national security yeah. letter in the US, which would make, which would ban them from from speaking about it. Oh, so but this the is the canary again. Bing, bing, bing. This is indeed <laughs> a, a new kind of canary, a hash canary. I don't know what we'll call it, but yeah. Ooh, I like it. Hash canary. You just coined the phrase. I That's hope so. Great. Yeah. yeah. So, so, I mean... Th that, that also answers something else. I, I was annoyed... And I heard this from an unreliable source, but that someone had said they um, reverse engineered. Oh, God, the... we're coming to that. We're, we're coming oh, to okay. that. Oh, okay. I, I won't talk about it then because you'll probably give more intelligence. Okay. Yeah, so there's a fire extinguisher next to the icon if that helps. Oh, okay. All right. Good. <laughs> uh, and then the, okay, so the CSAM. Uh, da, 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 yeah. So the last point then is. Um, Apple have confirmed what I had always understood, but I've heard so many people say differently, I wasn't sure if I'd misunderstood. So, as I understood it from day one, Apple, what will be in the safety voucher it, that only gets decryptable when you reach the threshold, right? So until you reach the threshold, none of the safety vouchers can be read. But once you hit the threshold, all the safety vouchers can be read. And in there is going to be a low-resolution thumbnail of the image, not the image. So Apple will never be able to review the image because Apple aren't legally allowed to possess the image. Right. That's why right, it always right. goes back to Nickmeck. And that is now in black and white. That is definitely the process. And I'd always understood that to be the process but because I read Apple's original white paper. But apparently a lot of people assumed Apple would just be reviewing the images. It's like, I don't think and Apple I heard staff that that was allowed to do that. One of the things I heard reported too. And I was like, <clears throat> no, that's no. not true. They're reviewing the safety voucher, not the image, which is a very different thing. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so as well as telling us new things, Apple also went on a big PR blitz. So uh, the first was their head of privacy did a text-based interview at TechCrunch. So if you're into mm. reading, you can by all means have a read. Uh, but what I enjoyed much more was the video interview with Joanna Stern um, and Craig Federighi. Now, because that was uh, the WSJ, it was visible briefly to the planet, but now that's fallen behind their paywall. So the best I can link to is the iMore article about the interview that was on WSJ.com, but is now paywalled off. Can, can I ask you a question? One thing I've been unable to hear in the reporting of this mm -hmm. is why... Um, oh shoot! The uh, the EFF is against so against this. Is it the iMessage part, not this? The EFF had a had a hot take so quick they couldn't possibly have thought it through, and now they've nailed their colors to the mast and won't the, back down. Yeah, they they were they their their outrage was so fast it could not be considered. The, the, okay. So to me, they've painted themselves into a corner. 
And I'm very disappointed because I am a I have regularly told people to do, to donate to the EFF. I do donate to the EFF, and I'm not going to stop because they're wrong on this, but they're right on a heck of a lot more. Okay. So personally, they, they I seem to still donating. be standing by their statements that the 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 Apple's ability to do this is a problem. They just. Uh, the I mean, if you take an absolutist view that safeguards are not possible, then at a philosophical level, they're, they're to me that's a religious objection instead of a a well thought out logic based, based science math. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. I, I mean, it it sort of reminds me of the open source movement a bit, where you have these <laughs> religious wars about which open source license is truly open source. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Uh, another thing that happened then is Corellium have jumped in and went right. Apple want auditing of this. Okay, then we will audit that database. And now that we know the hashes are coming, that's going to be something they can actually do. So that was very interesting to see Corellium jumping on board with that. And do we then, know that company name? Should I know who that is? So Corellium are the company that sell a security product that allows security researchers to jailbreak iPhones for security research. Oh, right, right, right. That okay. Apple were in the middle of suing over the DMCA. <laughs> and then the same week this happened, Apple settled one lawsuit with Corellium and the whole world went, yay, well done, Apple, this is great. Followed, if not the day after, then two days after by... Oh, but we're appealing this other lawsuit that Apple lost. <laughs> so it's like, here you go, Krillian, we've made a deal. Oh, yeah, no, that was only that court case. So that, that was such a bizarre bit of whiplash. But Flip-flop, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that, that is all happening. That is some independent review on the way. Needless to say, the pushback continues. There are now 90 rights groups. Um, Ars Technica have a good summary. Uh, but then we come to the thing you mentioned, which is this reverse engineering of neural hash. So there is code in iOS 14 that does some sort of image hashing. A nerd found the code, reverse engineered it, converted it to the Go language and published it on GitHub. And somehow, someone decided that that must be the code Apple are going to put into iOS 15 in order to do neural hashing for this new CSAM feature. They just assume that this old code must be what's coming. This old code isn't great. Therefore, this whole thing's a disaster. And Apple were like, uh, that's not the code we're about to release. Did they, did they say Apple that? Apple have said that. Uh, yeah, that pushback, okay, of good. course, has been lost in the, on the internet the firestorm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, the other thing was that this this nerd or other nerds who found the uh, the open source thing that they they published said that they were able to get it to recognize two different photos as the same photo. Right. I mean, that is what well, happens when a hash that goes shows, wrong. Right. But that shows you that it's not the database because you can't have those photos. I mean, if you did, that's interesting. Well, no, because they're saying they found the the engine for making a hash. So that doesn't mean that they have the database. It means they have the engine. I know, See? I know. But they said they 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 tested it on. They got two different photos to return the same hash. Right, which is why they're saying that Apple's algorithm is a disaster. Yeah, yeah. Okay, it and sounded like, like horse that's poop. That's not to me the algorithm. I, I just didn't know why it was horse poop, and you've cleared that up. Yeah, it's like I mean, 
to me, that's Apple were experimenting with hashing probably for a completely different reason, like duplicate detection in iCloud or something like that, right? I mean, there are lots of reasons to want to hash images that have nothing to do with CSAM. And if you're hashing images to do a bit of disk efficiency or to help people find duplicates to offer to clean them up, you don't have to be even 1% as efficient as when you're doing it for accusing people of trafficking in child porn. It's a very, very, very different problem to solve. Yeah, in fact, a lot of that duplication stuff is like, hey, these two photos, you know, Billy moved his head a 16th of an inch, you know, which one do you like better? Oh, so that is another problem that people, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's just, there was an assumption at the very, 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 very root of that story, which a whole bunch of people really should have taken the time to examine, but no, there was good clickbait to be had. So off the internet went. Right. Uh... Meanwhile, um, <laughs> there's something else happened on the internet. <laughs> there, well, no, there is actually something else that I found very interesting because a lot of people ask the question, "Why now?" Mm. Well, an email has come to light from Apple's fraud chief, basically saying our platform has pretty much nailed the privacy thing compared to everyone else. What our platform is now known, what our platform has instead now is a problem where we are being used by for grooming and the distribution of child pornography. Oh, wow. Therefore, so Apple's chief... Grooming too? Right. So why did they do iMessages? Yeah. And in other words, Apple have attacked, Apple have put out solutions to exactly the two problems their chief fraud officer went auga auga we need to attack this and apple have put out solutions to this you read the email you see what apple have done it's like oh ah right you told us we have this problem here's a solution okay mystery solved why did apple do this because he he said wow so that that was interesting the other piece that I learned this week, uh, actually, I think it was on ATP was the first place I heard it, but I've confirmed it, is that I, I, I live in such a sweet, happy little rose-colored glasses world, as I assume everybody's really nice and sweet. And you hear about something like uh, child sexual abuse material, and you think, okay, that's, that's a small problem. Facebook identified 20 million child sexual abuse images in 2020. Mm-hmm. 20 million Apple reported in the hundreds. So what they needed yeah. to know is that you know it's out there trying to find it, right? Yep. Yeah, I saw those numbers. Th- those numbers broke a few days after we recorded last, actually, where, where people were doing comparisons of the numbers reported by Microsoft, Facebook, Dropbox, and yeah. Apple. And it was like not, oh, they're out by half. No, no, orders of magnitude. Like, if yeah. you were to graph it linearly... And that doesn't mean Apple people are sweet. <laughs> Correct. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. You know, blissful ignorance. But if your chief fraud officer breaks the, bl- breaks the ignorance, then you have a responsibility to attack the problem. Yeah. I wonder how they got that email or that, that message. Well, I mean, obviously, Apple's fraud chief's job is to try to figure out what's going on in the platform. So whether that just involves in, in some sort of, you know, maybe law enforcement tapped them on the shoulder and went, yeah, we've noticed a bit of a pattern when we arrest people. They're all using their iCloud. You know, I mean, if you think about it, people get arrested and then their devices get seized. Well, end-to-end encryption does nothing to protect you when the end is seized. He's in their right? hand. Yeah. yeah. 
So if if the reports are to come back to Apple's chief fraud officer from the FBI or whatever saying, uh, there's a pattern here and we don't like it, you need to be aware of this, well, then that feeds back to Apple, right? Yeah, well, I was just wondering how uh, someone got a hold of that message from the chief fraud officer. I don't think he publicized that in the New York Times. No, but I actually should have dug into that more. It, it, It could, well, it could be an intentional leak from Apple now. Or it's from court cases, because the amount of discovery, right, the oh, amount of people yeah. who sue Apple, the amount of discovery that's going on all the time is huge. That's, that's how we found out recently that Steve Jobs was in favor of an iPhone Nano at one stage. That came out of one <laughs> of these discovery emails. All this stuff going yeah. Anyway, that is, that is okay. how things have developed in two weeks on this, this story. Um, it's not over yet. So moving on to... The long-running trend of social media sites trying to get their house in order. I am really happy to say that there is lots of positive movement here in terms of getting your house in order. So first on my list, Facebook. So one of the things to come out of the uh, GDPR is this notion that data portability is something platforms are supposed to support. And Facebook has something called the Facebook Transfer Tool, which is designed to allow you to migrate your data out of Facebook to other platforms. And it's existed for a while. It was Europe only for a while, but it's been more widely rolled out. Well, Facebook have improved it again by adding two new endpoints of note, Photo Bucket and Google Calendar, and a whole new data type, Facebook Events. So they are that data is now portable out of Facebook, which is nice. Yeah. Now, um, I hadn't been keeping track of this, so uh, I just followed the link you posted to the Mac Observer article by Andrew Orr, and the destinations are now Photobucket, Google Photos, Backblaze, Blogger, Dropbox, Google Calendar, Code Codefer, I think it says, and WordPress. <laughs> so, you know, it's good to see Facebook. Koofer. So they're basically one-click exports to these targets, which is fantastic. right? Because yeah. you can also just do a dump to a giant big zip file, but then you have a giant big zip file. I mean, you, I, you, I did it on Apple. People, you did it on Apple just to see what would happen. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's I, interesting, it, but not useful. It is interesting. I'm trying to think if so. You've posted your photos to uh, Facebook, and now you want them back. Did you not keep them? No, no. It's not that you want them back. You have been posting to Facebook. They finally made you cranky to the point that you're going to sod off, right? But, but you still want to have them online, but you don't want to re-upload them all to Photobucket. You just push a button and now all of your stuff's over on Photobucket. So now you can just move your online presence. I guess, but Photobucket isn't a social network. Right, but... It's a Photobucket. Right, but... Okay, your photographs are on the internet. Your family can see them all. You want to have them still on the internet where your family can still see them without you having to download and repost them. You just want to push a button and keep them on the internet, just not on Google, or not on Facebook. Or the the calendar one is interesting. I almost want to do this. I almost want to do this to see what would happen if you send them to WordPress.com. Do they each become separate blog posts? I wonder how that works. That, that could be an be, insane that would be exercise. The most, well, yeah, but WordPress has a gallery, so would they all become media assets in the gallery? Yeah. Interesting. That, that is interesting, yeah, because WordPress have their it's own It's all APIs. the right direction. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's all in the right direction. Exactly. Uh, Google have also announced a bunch of improvements to their child protection features. There's a link to their blog post for the detail. None of it is earth-shattering. They're all just sensible tweaks. And that's kind of what you want, is a collection of sensible tweaks. So details in the blog post there. Uh, Signal are now allowing you to make it the default behavior to have your messages auto-delete. So 
they've already had auto-deleting messages for ages, but now you can say that by default, my messages will auto-delete. So oh, people will want That's that. like where you set it for five minutes or 30 seconds or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I, I would assume a little bit longer than 30 seconds, but yes. You know, if you're well, those are default. some of the options. In, in Telegram, I think you can get it down to one second. That's like so you'd a have game. to be having a real-time conversation. Yeah, that's like a comprehension test rather than a conversation. <laughs> Don't blink. Um, Instagram have rolled out a bunch of new tools to try to control abuse on their pattern via DMs and comments. And actually, they've done some quite clever stuff here. So their limits feature allows you to hide DMs and comments from people that don't follow you or have only recently started. So this came about as a response to the when Brit when England, not Britain, when England lost in the World Cup. Unfortunately, some of the players who missed their penalty shots uh, were no, they were black. They weren't African American. They're English. They're black. Um, that's not the calling I've made English, that same mistake. <laughs> yeah, it's like that's that's not being pure. That's being dumb. Anyway, the point is, there was a horrible amount of racist abuse directed at... I mean, they just happened to beat the footballers who missed the penalty, but no, we must be racist at them. Uh, But of course, the racism is coming from people who've either... The scandal has happened, they now start to follow, and then they send the abuse. If you just say, unless you've been following me for the last six months, I don't want to see you. Well, that rules out so much of this abuse. It's just such a simple feature. So Hmm. it's actually very clever of them. Interesting. They've also adding another interesting feature called hidden words, where anything, any messages to you that are potentially offensive get filtered into a separate inbox, and you can just decide whether or not you're in the humour for looking at stuff that might be dodgy. And if you're in the middle of a giant big scandal, I wouldn't go into that inbox. So um, they're literally making these people spit in the wind. Not yeah. literally, figuratively. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then the last thing I thought was very interesting is they're talking about adding in some AI to detect spikes in abusive messages and to proactively tell people about these features. So huh. we think you're being attacked here by the way you can protect yourself with. Which hmm. again, seems very clever to me. Yeah. Uh, also, actually, about the um, the racist abuse was the same basis here after the football. So Twitter used that whole shenanigans after the World Cup as an opportunity to try learn, basically, how would we stop this from happening again? And one of the questions they had was, if we were to switch to a model where you had to prove your identity to be on Twitter, would that have stopped this abuse? Which is a very valid question to ask, because I, I, I definitely have fallen into the trap of, if we made the internet not anonymous, none of this would happen. Well, mm-hmm. Twitter went, okay, fine, let's test that hypothesis. 98% of the people sending abusive messages to the English football players, their identity was not just trackable, they tracked it, they narrowed it down to people, and actually the British police did a whole bunch of arrests. So oh, actually, wow. and anonymity isn't it. People... People are, you know, a-holes behind the keyboard, not because they think they're anonymous, but because they're human beings behind the keyboard. <laughs> there is something psychological about that that makes you think you can be an a-hole. And it's, you're not thinking logically, ooh, well, I'm anonymous. You, no, it's just something way deeper. So as much as I used to be the kind of person to spout about that, if we just got rid of anonymity, the internet would be fine. Mm-hmm. Science does not it's agree provably with provably false. <laughs> yeah, science does not agree with my overly Very simplistic view of the world. Yeah. TikTok 
are next in line to add new privacy features. Uh, they're aiming at protecting their teens. And what they're doing is they're changing the defaults for teenagers. So if you sign up as a teenager, your account will default to not accepting DMs. You can opt in. If you sign up as a teenager, your account will default to sharing your videos by the least sherry way. I don't understand TikTok enough to know exactly what this means. So basically, everything in your account will default to being as private as possible. And you will be allowed to choose to open up. But you're okay. choosing to open up, which is a very, very, very different thing to being open by default and expecting teenagers to proactively decide how much to lock down. Right? The tyranny of the default is a really big deal. Was, you know, was it about pensions or something? Where if you default to everyone being in the pension scheme, you have way, way, way less poverty at pension age just because it's easier to do what the default says. So if you if you want to be an influencer, you are not being stopped in any way from broadcasting to the world. But if you're just on there to talk to your family, you're not talking to the world by default, which exposes you to way less abuse, frankly. And the other thing I really liked is that their push notifications respect the kind of hours that teenagers are supposed to be awake and asleep. So after 9pm for 13 year olds, you stop getting push notifications. So that auga, auga, oh, look at kinda... me, look at me, goes away. That's why has no huh. one thought about this before? Why is this? Why no, is I don't it... know if I like that one. That seems a little. But no, but it doesn't stop you checking. Should this? Should You're right. The, should these sites, which are all based off triggering, triggering your um, dopamine response? Maybe it's okay to not trigger your dopamine after nine p.m. if you are thirteen. If you want to look, they're not, they're not stopping know. people that looking, one, that right? One doesn't, that one doesn't resonate with me. Well, if you, based on the chemical addiction to these things, this one resonates really strongly with me, probably more strongly than any other. Because the toxicity of these services is that dopamine addiction they're trying to build up. So to me... Oh, I, if people listening will have already heard me talk about how much I love TikTok and how much of time I spend a day on it. Absolutely. <laughs> but... but uh, <sighs> This made me love TikTok so much more. This, like, what they're doing here is so good. The thing about timing and sleep and everything is, it's when we grow up, it's very difficult to remember what sleep is like to a, for a teenager. If you if you roll back time, remember your parents trying to wake you up because the sun is up and you should be up. <laughs> and yet your body was just like, no, I needed to keep sleeping. And and it, I, I remember it when I was a child, and I've heard people talking about it now as adults, saying, no, it's different. So their sleep patterns, they may not be made okay, to sleep I, at nine o'clock. Okay, sorry. And I deciding have said sleep. what time no, no, sorry, they should my go bad. to sleep. I, I have explained the feature badly. It's not about sleep. It's about not, it's about not proactively nagging. It's not about not proactively alerting people at a time when they should be in downtime. It's not about sleep. It's about having some... Restful if you think time. about the physical real world, when, you, when I was a teenager, when it was late at night, I was still awake. In fact, I was more awake than ever. But it was a time when the universe wasn't constantly haranguing me. Yeah. So it wasn't that I was... It's not about sleep. So that, that, that was me just describing it badly. It's about okay. not haranguing people downtime see I, I, maybe my my reaction to this is because it's tiktok i think if you'd described the same feature for f uh twitter i would have said good 
But to me, TikTok is such a happy place because they have tapped into a visceral part of my brain uh, that, that makes me really happy. So watching TikTok before I go to sleep would be a wonderful way to go to sleep for me. So I'm, I'm reacting specifically because of my understanding of it. Right, but remember, they're not stopping... Like, anyone who wants to go to bed with their fun TikTok and just go to the TikTok app and watch their videos as their normal <clears> bedtime <throat> routine, this isn't... They're not blocking anyone. It's not like TikTok turns itself off, right? It's not like it's saying, yeah. thou shalt not view TikTok. It's like, we're not going to proactively tap you on the shoulder. If you, if you, wanna, if you want, they're not stopping you in any way, right? They're just not going, look Don't at me, take my look TikTok at me, look away. <laughs> they're not taking TikTok away. They're absolutely not taking TikTok away. Uh, Facebook have enabled end-to-end -end encryption on Messenger calls and Instagram DMs, like they said they would. Uh, and then finally, an interesting one, again, with Twitter and their experimenting. I, I really like that Twitter are a... I am sure all the social media platforms are doing experiments, but Twitter are doing their experiments in a much more open way than others, and they tell you when they try... Th like, the fact that they tried fleets and it was didn't work, they didn't quietly make the feature go away. They were like, no, we tried it, this wasn't it. Well, they're now trying something else quite publicly, where they're, it's, it's, a, it's a confined sort of a trial... They're saying a limited amount of users in a few countries. But they're allowing users to report posts for misinformation under a few different categories, including medical slash COVID-19. Mm. And they're, they're basically saying, we don't know if this is going to work. We don't know if this is going to be helpful, but we want to figure out whether or not this is part of a future of a less toxic Twitter. So I okay. very much look forward to hearing the outcome of this trial. Yeah, if they can figure that out, that would be awesome. Yeah. I'm just really liking the fact that they're prepared to experiment in public. That's like, yeah, okay, you are actually different. Thank you, Jack Dorsey. You are actually doing something different to everyone else. So I like that. Uh, back in March, yourself and myself did a deep dive on something called Total Cookie Protection, which Firefox were working on then, and they had announced that it would be rolling out in multiple stages, first to private mode only, and then to everyone. Well... Today is everyone day. Firefox 91 has total cookie protection for every user of Firefox. It's now fully rolled out. And you and I have both watched The Social Dilemma. It is an important work of our decade. You and I both agree it is not. I could not have put this as a palate cleanser at the end of the show. It would no. not be appropriate. <laughs> Don't watch this. Don't listen to Bart. Don't watch it. I... To Your me, enjoyment like of, of the world will diminish when you watch it. To me, this is something everyone needs to... I, I think it's sort of your duty. Yes, to everyone does need to know. We do yeah, need I, to watch it. But don't do it. Don't listen to it. But it's not a palate cleanser. Yeah. So it, it's a Netflix original. So if you don't have Netflix, you, probably, you haven't had a chance to see it. Well, it's now free on YouTube. Not pirated. Okay. Legitimately available. But like Alison says, this is not a happy, happy, joy, joy documentary. This is quite the opposite of that. I the, think the it's thing important. that's so appalling about this is this is people who worked at uh, Facebook describing exactly what they're doing to suck us in and how yeah. they're how they're needling their way into the the DNA of our souls to 
ruin everything. It's just so depressing. I've tried to forget it, Bart. That's how bad that affected me. Well, it's funny because they, they definitely make a point of ending up by saying, but you can choose not to take part in this. And to me, I actually find that very positive because understanding how how it works, to me, helps you put your shields up. So I actually found, I actually, I mean, it wasn't yay, but I, I found it a positive experience on balance. Someone, and I think it might have been, it was either David Roth or George from Tulsa sent me an article about how TikTok uh, figures out what you want to watch. And mm. my reaction was, okay, cool. So if I follow that recipe, I can get what I want. <laughs> Yeah, that whatever you do, don't stick a heart on a political comment if you don't want politics in your feed. Which <laughs> don't seems pause, quite sensible, right? Swipe away as quickly as you can. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, that was actually kind of interesting uh, to see how the TikTok worked. Because obviously TikTok are doing something very different to how the YouTube algorithm works because the, the end result is extremely different. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. yeah. It's good different, by the way. Um, it's, yeah. Action alerts. It has been Patch Tuesday. One of the bugs that was patched is now being actively exploited because what always happens is the bad guys reverse engineer the patches and go, ooh, cool, let's get all the people who are slow to update. So don't be one of those people. Patchy, patchy, patch, patchy, patch. patchy, patch, patch. <laughs> ooh, we did it in unison. <laughs> <laughs> Despite the, yeah, the obvious delay. Um Tenable, this is kind of a this is kind of a, an interesting story. So one of the Tenable engineers just decided on a whim, I wonder how secure my home router is. I'll have a poke. He did not like what he found at all. And then he realized that his brand of router is really, really common. And not only so it's Buffalo, which are a fairly big vendor, but Buffalo mm-hmm. don't only make Buffalo routers. They also sell their routers to a lot of major ISPs who then stick a sticker on them and call them a Verizon bladdy blah or a Vodafone yadamajig. Uh, so there are a whole bunch of security updates and a whole bunch of people who have Buffalo routers who may not know they have Buffalo routers should really patch their router. So the simplest advice is make sure you're fully up to date with all available firmware patches or the link to the Tenable article has a table with the 37 known affected uh, products and you can check against it. But to me, the yeah, answer is Yeah, there are some just, big names. Ver, uh, Verizon, Vodafone, Telus, Telstra, um, uh, Asus, Arcadian. Yeah, oof. Yeah. yeah, patchy, patchy, patch, patch. Patchy, patchy, patch, patch. Um. Worthy warnings, then. I think the biggest story, which I watched develop over these weeks, it was like, I, th- you know, we think there's been a breach at T-Mobile. Someone is selling T-Mobile data. Ooh, this actually looks like it might be real. T-Mobile are investigating. Well, anyway, bottom line, there was a breach at T-Mobile. It exposed social security numbers, dates of birth, and stuff like that, because it was actually a breach of their credit applications. Social security numbers and dates of birth. Yeah. Wow. But not credit card numbers and not your phone number, so it's okay. T-Mobile <laughs> were very careful to point that out. It's like, it doesn't contain your pen or your phone number. Just just the basic things to steal your identity. Yeah. Anyway, oh, th- th- there are more details in the Krebs on security article. It is very much a US-centric story if you are affected. I have always been... I've, I've fought for... Oh, a good hour and 20 minutes with a rep at Verizon way back when I was buying a Verizon MiFi about why they had to have my social security number. Well, because, you know, we're renting you this and we have to make sure you're going to pay your bill. Yeah, but why do you need my social security number? For your credit check. <laughs> That's how they But you can do a credit, credit check, check without, a, without a social security number. 
I don't I'm, give my social security number to a credit card company. Do you not need to give it to apply for to apply for a bank account? We we I, have to prove our identity for money laundering purposes. Know your customer laws. I thought they were international. That uh, I made for a bank account, but T-Mobile's not a bank. I know, Check my but credit they're report. Right, but they're trying to get the credit report and to make absolutely sure it's you. And that you're not just snooping the, the the financial institutions. They probably have to provide the SSN to be given. Your Why can't they for. just snoop the the? I mean, uh, the problem is they're using they're using your social security number is both a unique ID on a whole bunch of databases and supposedly secret information. Well, it can be one <laughs> or the other. It can be a unique identifier, or it can be secret. Yeah, but the fact that it's being used as both that that's just like. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, it's not much shiny happy. This is where the warnings. It's not big on shiny happy. Um, <laughs> speaking of not big on shiny happy, Mandiant, uh, we're doing some poking around. So, a lot of lower cost IoT devices, the vendors don't. They don't have the no, not they don't have the resources. They have chosen that rather than trying to do everything. They buy the cloud backend as a software as a service and basically rebadge it. And so you buy, you know, baby monitors and video cameras from lots of different vendors, but the actual backend under the hood is purchased from a third party. And one of the big ones being used by a lot of the the sort of lower end devices coming from Asia is something called Kale. And Unfortunately, when they poked and prodded at Kale, it did not respond well. So there are basically lots of different brands of IoT device that are all vulnerable because mm. this backend is vulnerable. So mm. the details in the Naked Security show notes. Um, oh, actually, I've just realized that a story has somehow managed to slip through the net. Oh, no, it didn't slip through the net, but I should have just linked it here. Um some bad news that is definitely related. Uh, the matter standard has been delayed until 2022. Which yeah. Means those of us who want better mm-hmm. smart devices not prone to this kind of shenanigans have to wait a little bit longer. Yeah. They probably should get it right and they shouldn't rush out something that, that's broken. But gosh darn it, I, that's been my... I want it now. I want it now. <laughs> and now that I own a house that I actually want to do some smart stuff, I'm like, well, I'm not buying smart stuff now when there's an actual standard months away. That's Just to thing. review, matter is the uh, is the agreement amongst the big players and then the smaller players coming along with it that will allow interoperability between them. And a security floor, which is the bit that's particularly interesting to me. Because I'm yeah. not going to be using Google Home or Alexa. But mm-hmm. I do want the security floor. It's basically everything that has the standard is at least got this baseline security. And it's interoperable. Right, so for, right. The best of both worlds, yeah. Yeah, so for some people, the interoperability is the, ooh, oh, and it has a baseline. But for me, I'm not going to have interoperability. I, I'm, you know, S-Lady grudgingly gets into my house, but no one else does. I think part of what we'll get is it'll be easier for devices to work with HomeKit, I think. Correct. Yes, absolutely. You're right. Which should so, actually so mean we'll be allowed choice. to use HomeKit instead of being forced into one of the others. Yeah. That, you're right. Uh, so basically, we as the consumer are going to have a much easier time getting devices. That whole, mm. will this work for me question goes away. Because a lot of people end up with all three digital assistants in their house because it's just too difficult to try to figure out how not to end up with three of them. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, there's, uh, there are. I have pinned many hopes on matter 
and its friend uh, Thread. Uh, Thread is still going ahead, but but matter is now delayed. But it, look, it's not cancelled; it's just delayed, and they probably should get it right. You know? Remember, the Thread has nothing to do with interoperability, but it has an interoperability piece to it that will allow things to use e- devices to use each other to create kind of like a quasi mesh to make their their negotiations faster. Yeah, so Thread is the hardware part of the security floor. So that's why I'm interested in Thread because it's just a really but it, yeah. Cool but it's 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 not just security. It has to do with making like if you've got a low energy Bluetooth device, it can gain power by what it's near in your house. If you've got a ton of a uh, ton of stuff, right? What it's yeah uh, yeah yes, absolutely none of that is yes. But but what what, what has me excited is the fact that it, it it gives us this. No one has to keep reinventing the sodding wheel. All of these hardware makers can use this technology to get a really reliable network in your house that is secure and will just work. And again, it should result in way cheaper devices for all of us to buy and not so much choice. And a security yeah, floor right. built into the standard. Right. Not like an afterthought tacked on later. Like it's, We've made it secure from day one. I just, I'm so excited about those two technologies. Gosh darn it, I want, I want. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Where was I in my actual show notes before I distracted myself? Oh, yeah, we're still in worthy warning, so we're still in our scary bit. Uh, Ancestry.com are the latest to join the Let's Rewrite Our Terms of Service to Make Everyone Cranky model. Uh, the headline from Gizmodo probably says it all. Ancestry.com just gave itself the rights to your beloved family photos. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Okay. Moving on to notable news. It would appear that cybercriminals have noticed that there's an awful lot of money sitting in crypto exchanges. And by the very name, like, the feature that makes cryptocurrency so popular among many of its most loyal fans is the fact that it is impossible to regulate. It is free from government regulation. What that means is that if someone steals your stuff, nobody can give it back. So if you choose to put your money in an exchange... You are completely trusting that exchange. So you can keep your money in your own wallet and then you're completely trusting yourself. And the amount of sob stories of people who have like one Bitcoin in a wallet they can't remember the password to is is also very high. (laughs) So then you use exchanges, but then if the exchange has a slip up, you lose all of your money. And there is no going back here because you've, you've opted for an unregulated world. Well, welcome to an unregulated world. So in the last two weeks, 600 million... It uh, was nicked from something called Poly Networks. Now, some of that was given back, which was the, the thieves chose to return the money. It's not clear if they had always intended that or if they ended up being a little bit too famous and coming under a little bit too much pressure and they decided to make the problem go away in a bit of a sort of a... Uh, uh, that pipeline in the US... They were like, yeah, yeah, we're shutting down now. The the hacking organization who did that. Now they're back since with a new name. Uh, Not quite sure what's going on, but anyway. Poly Network's a lot of that money. They they didn't just return a little bit of it. They returned a lot of it. Uh, Well, they nicked 600 million, and last I'd heard, 240 million was back. So that is a lot of money. I thought there was a report after that that it was up in the 5 millions, I thought. Okay, good. The, the, the The more that comes back, the better. Uh, but there's there's no reason it had to, and it didn't come back because lo- anyone has the power to make it come back. You know, the exposure is real, right? But didn't but they did arrest behind this, right? 
Uh, is that behind that one or is that behind the Japanese one where it was 100 million taken from a Japanese crypto coin exchange? Well, it- um, maybe that's... Uh, okay, I'm not sure. I'm reading something about an arrest in the article that you linked to, but that might have been about Mt. Gox. Yeah, that's the, the Mt. Gox is the first of these, the most famous of these, where basically Mt. Gox just evaporated in a giant heap of cybercrime. Right, right. It, it's basically the point to make is that these exchanges, you are trusting them to hold your cryptocurrency. If they uh, as of up. August August thirteenth, sorry, ZDNet says Poly Network Network Poly Network hackers now return almost all of the six hundred million dollars. That is a relief, but remember, there was no reason to assume that would happen. When you trust, yeah. you know, they got lucky. And Poly Network is an aggregator, I guess, of these these tools. But that's what an exchange is, right? An exchange is a place where a lot of right. these exchanges will allow you to have multiple wallets in one account, and they have an interaction to the real world of money. So they allow you to go between pretend, you know, cryptocurrency and dollars or pounds or you know whatever you're having yourself. Okay. Uh, so they're 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 the kind of place that people. It's a bit like having your money in an online uh, shareholding company. Your money is in trust with someone else. And it, with the case of a shareholding company or a bank, there's regulators and there's there's an ability to return your money if something happens to the place you've entrusted your money. But with cryptocurrency, by its cryptographic nature, if it's stolen, there's no guarantee of ever getting it back because it's cryptographically non-centralized. That's sort of the point. Okay, it, it, okay. Yeah. So anyway, it's a warning to people to, you know, if you keep your own wallet... And if you lose the key, you lose all your money, which is bad. But if you use one of these exchanges and they get hacked, well, all you've done is change who you're trusting. Because you're you are right. you are living in a world where it is intentionally not no there is intentionally no one who can rescue you. That's the point. Hey, um, you use an acronym in your editorial by Bart comment that I've never seen before. You said, "Remember that the whole point of BTC is Bitcoin. that it's impossible to write. You know the way USD okay. is, is that only being... true of Bitcoin? It isn't no, true of no, cryptocurrency no, in general. That, no, that's that's true of all of them. But Bitcoin is like the the, the mother of all. Okay, but you can this change was that to cryptocurrencies. Those. You can change, okay. just change, change BTC to cryptocurrencies. Okay. okay, just want to make sure I understood. Got it. Yeah. Uh, now we switch into good news mode because we like to end good. on good news mode. So <laughs> Apple have released an update to iCloud for Windows, which contains a full-on password manager. So. We previously had that Apple released a browser plugin for Windows people that they could use their iCloud pass- their iCloud keychain on Edge, I think it was, and probably Chrome too, now that I think about it, because they're all Chromium-based. So basically, Windows users could make use of the passwords they had safely saved into iCloud keychain on their iPhones. Mm-hmm. Well, but they could only use them in the browser. They couldn't actually see them. Like, th- there was no Windows equivalent okay. of keychain access. Well, now okay. there is. Yeah, I've asked uh, uh, Jill McKinley to take a look at this because she's a, a, a Mac user, a Windows user, an iPhone user, and I asked her if she would uh, take a look at it and give us a review of it. Oh, and I cool. Think she's going to be doing that for us. Yeah. I'd like Excellent. to know how that works. Then I don't have to. Good. I look forward. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then our friends at GitHub ha- are tightening their control of how changes get pushed. 
And the reason this is a security story for everyone is because of how much open source software is sitting on GitHub. So GitHub security is basically software security for vast swathes of the software we use. And GitHub promised us last December they would be tightening the rules on the level of authentication needed to do a Git push. And they have now gone ahead with that. So you cannot push to any Git repository with a username and password. You must use SSH keys, OAuth integration, or a personal access token. You know what I love about this part is the the level of security I have to climb through to get into GitHub is significantly significantly higher than my bank or my health insurance. <laughs> it, it is the most secure thing I use. I, I don't dislike that. I just yeah. it's like, hey, everybody, can you look over here? Look what these guys are doing. doing. You know? Yeah, on. because the problem isn't that GitHub are being too secure. The problem is with the others. <laughs> yeah. You know, I got a really interesting... Um, Question: I did a, a a talk at a user group this week about um, xkpasswd.net, Bart's awesome tool for generating secure, memorable passwords. And at the end, I said, "This is an open source project. He doesn't, you know, out of the goodness of his soul for the internet. Uh, here's the donate button. Please push donate." And I got an interesting question. A person asked me, "Well, if it's open source, doesn't that mean people could uh, could push malware into his tool?" And I was it's good they asked, right? It is good but they asked. But that showed yeah. a fundamental misunderstanding of what open source means. I said Bart has to look at it and Bart has to agree to it and Bart has to pull it in after someone requests that they do that. And I and I uh, that's not something that's well known apparently. Well right, think about it. I think the I think what this comes from is that Wikipedia is a type of open source, but it's a different type of open source. It's open collaboration. And I think people conflate totally the Wikipedia different. model with the open source software model. Now, I said they could fork his code and make a bad version of it. Yes, indeedy. Yes, because <laughs> basically I have published my work and others are free to copy my work, but they are not free to edit my copybook. My yes. copybook is my yeah. own. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have just Xeroxed it and handed it out. But I'm, I like when people ask questions like that. That's good because yeah. you find oh, out that what people don't understand. And I, you know, I didn't mock the person in any way. I said, oh, that's a great question. This is what it really means. Yeah, and it is a great question. And what I love about those questions is they're easy to answer. <laughs> yes. Some of their other questions were not as easy. But anyway, keep it going. Indeed, exactly. So the, that's sort of it for the main stuff. But I do sort of want to give some link credit to some of the things I found interesting. So some interesting insights that caught my eye. Um, there's a nice report from uh, intactsoftware.com. The biggest cyber hacking targets in the world. Where are the bad guys focusing their attention? So I thought that was interesting. Like a, a top 10 hit of, of who the bad guys think is valuable enough, I guess, to go after. And uh, to some extent, it's all the usual suspect. WhatsApp, Facebook, Instagram, Roblox, Snapchat, Zoom, Facebook Messenger, TikTok, Netflix, and YouTube. <laughs> okay. But it is kind of interesting that they are the accounts that are under the biggest attack. Hmm. And the most valuable usernames and passwords if you can steal them to sell on the black market. Uh, another thing that caught my eye is a good article from Wired explaining that while it is true that the 5G standard includes way better security than what came before, 4G, 3G, etc. And it is also true that there is a lot of 5G now available in the Western world. What is not true is that we have any of that security. Because most of the 5G oh. is being rolled out in a legacy mode where it's actually 4G security with 5G speed. Oh, interesting. 
And that's not a subtlety most of us would have been aware of. So until until Wired drew my attention to it, it hadn't occurred to me. So the takeaway is, you know the way we keep telling people that SMS isn't secure? Well, it's still not secure. And you know the way we keep telling people that using your phone is much less secure than you think? You're much better off using VoIP. Well, that's still true, even on 5G. So just carry on. Okay. Okay. Uh, and then the last one, I just I just wanted somewhere to put this in the show notes because I just think in an ideal world, every cell company in the world will implement this new protocol and give us all more privacy. I just don't think it's ever going to happen. But a bunch of really intelligent security researchers, sorry, academics, not security researchers, they've developed a protocol to make it possible for cell phone carriers to give us this whole concept of our phones roaming around from cell tower to cell tower and having the magic of mobile phones without them being able to track our location by separating out our identity from our roaming. So basically you have an anonymous ID used to keep you connected and then separate to that, you have your ID for billing and stuff. And at the moment, we use the one ID, which is why your cell phone, always, your cell carrier always knows where you are. But there's no need for those to be connected. So they've developed a whole cryptographically secured, privacy-aware mechanism that cell carriers could use to disconnect connectivity from identifiability. Okay. I don't think it'll ever happen. But the fact that it is designed and it is ready to be used is great. And I thought that's some very interesting research. And this looks like they've done a good job of solving the problem. I just, maybe I'm too cynical. Maybe, actually, let's hope I'm too cynical. Let's, let's. Yes, yes. There is, a, there is a brighter future. Yes. So on to actual genuine palate cleansing as opposed to wishful thinking. Uh, I, this, this article was linked to me some time ago. And it, it sort of... It's been sitting on my to-read list. I actually have a tag in Pocket called to-read, and it's just taken me forever to actually get around to reading it. Um, Basically, it's an article that was triggered by an event that happened in Russia where all of a sudden half the internet just vanished inside Russia behind the Russian firewall. And it turned out to be every website that contained the letters t.co. Or is it 2.co? Whatever Twitter's link shortener is. I think it's, is it 2.co or t.co? I think it's just t.co. Okay. Okay. They accidentally put in two generic irregular expression in their firewall. And instead of it being 2.co, it was any URL that contains t.co, including Microsoft.com. Oh my God. And that's the starting point for the article. But what it takes you on is the history of regular expressions and how interrelated it is with the history of AI. I had no idea. Some really big names come up in there too. It was fascinating. So it's not a long read. I just wish I'd read it more punctually. Uh, It's probably been sitting there for months, but I finally read it. I was like, oh, wow, this is cool. Uh, And then inspired by... Yeah, so then inspired by your pick last time, um, since you rely on us to to curate the astronomy picture of the day for you, I have curated one for you. It's called Perseid Rain, and it's this amazing photograph that's that's taken so much work to do. But basically, it's a really, really, really wide-angle shot of the the Milky Way, and one one of the meteor showers every year is called the Perseids, and it's radiant. The point where all the meteors come from is in the Milky Way. And so this is a long exposure shot. So you see all of the shooting stars coming out of the Milky Way. And then the photographer has used an umbrella with LEDs to light paint a couple holding hands, the the lady in a wedding dress, 
underneath this rain of stars. It is it is such an amazing oh, piece of God. art. Oh, I didn't. I was. Uh, I didn't. You have to really open your window up to see. I didn't see the uh, the couple getting married. Isn't that just so beautiful? Oh, it really is. I like that the guy's wearing a baseball cap. She's wearing a wedding dress. Yeah, <laughs> he's got jeans a, and tennis shoes. <laughs> it is a bit asymmetric, but the LED umbrella is just kind of cool as the light source for the bit of light painting at the bottom of the long exposure photograph. It's. It is. I mean, how, how yes, it's find... an astronomy picture, but it's a piece of art. But they also had to find the center of where the Perseids are coming from, right? Well, we know where the, the Perseids are coming from. They had to find a road, which at the time of day, when the Milky Way and the Perseids would be there, would line up like that. Because the, the, the sky and the land are lined up to make an amazing composition here. Someone did a lot of research. Like a lot of yeah. research to make this possible. And you can't try again. Well, you can next year. <laughs> but you are waiting a year to try again. <laughs> that looks uh that's something doug ingram will appreciate yeah i, I, I honestly i was actually the, thinking it doug when, when i saw this picture because it's the kind of our, you know his, his nightscapades he calls nightscapades. himself that's uh, my brain was going it's it's a cool word and i can't think of it now but yes <laughs> um and i already have a palette cleanser for next time in the bag but i'm going to save it till next time because, and it's also photography related but i'm going to save it because we have nice ones now anyway that's Very all i cool. got for you today um but you know i think there. That was fun. That wasn't nearly as depressing as some. <laughs> yeah, I think last time was particularly depressing. So this is nice that the universe has averaged it out for us. We're back on an even keel. Yeah, very good. Very good. All right. Well, thank you for all of this, Bart. This was fun. I really enjoyed it. Me too. And uh, remember, folks, until next time, stay patched so you stay secure. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. Don't forget to send in your dumb questions. Everything is fiddly. Come on, things have been fiddly. Where are those everything is fiddly recordings? Send those, your comments and suggestions by emailing me at allison at podfeed.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at podfeed. You know, when you're doom scrolling. Remember, everything good starts with podfeed.com. We've got podfeed.com slash Patreon and podfeed.com slash PayPal for those donations. If you want to join in the fun of the conversation, you can use Slack at podfeed.com slash Slack or Facebook at podfeed.com slash Facebook. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, we had a lively crew this week. It was lots of fun. Head on over to podfeed.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocella Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.